Welcome to the latest edition of the Crossroads podcast. Today, we discuss the surging trend of P3 broadband projects in the U.S., which has started to surface in highway projects after some earlier setbacks and have increased amongst rural counties on the heels of the Biden administration pushing broadband incentives through the America's Jobs Plan. Joining me in today's discussion is Devin Campbell, Assistant Vice President for Plenary Americas, Andrew Petrosen, Associate Consultant with WSP, and Information Analyst Olivia McFadden. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, guys and gals. Before we get into a broader discussion, Olivia, can you perhaps outline what P3 deals are currently in the market for broadband across the U.S.? Hi, JV. Thank you for the introduction and welcome Devin and Andrew to the podcast. Uh, this trend toward P3 broadband has indeed been a significant part of the U.S. market in the past couple of years, and I'm excited to uh, provide a quick overview that um, from the data we currently have on our database. So for the past two years, we have out of a total of 25 P3 broadband projects. And so these are fixed uh, telecommunications in the fixed line subsector. Uh, and this is across 17 states. Out of these 25 projects, we have approximately half of them that are either rural or highway initiatives. And three of these projects were canceled and one was placed on hold and eight of them remain in pre-launch. However, we still see that there is a lot of initiative, even if these projects have not materialized the same as other P3s in the U.S. Arizona and California have had the most initiatives, um, although two of the three canceled projects were from California. Um, Arizona has two projects at pre-launch and one, the Gilbert Fiber Optic Project, had um, RFPs returned from Cox Communications and Sci-Fi Networks last September. One rural procurement in Vermont, the Trailblazer Broadband P3, reached financial close in September 2019. And five other rural procurements are on the horizon in Arizona, Maryland, Nebraska, Vermont, and Virginia. Uh, five highway roadway projects are in pre-launch in Arizona, Georgia, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Tennessee. The Georgia Interstate Broadway development was canceled in March 2019 with the initiative reinstated in October 2020. The North Carolina Department of Transportation Highway Broad Broadband Procurement is um, is set to close soon. It's close to reaching financial close. Uh, two other projects that have preferred proponents but have not yet reached financial close are the 40 million West Des Moines uh, Fiber to the Home Network P3, which was awarded to Google last July. And the California State Park Wi-Fi and Broadband Project, which was awarded to Access Parks last month. The Inglewood California Broadband P3 received respo um, RFP responses from Ko-Fi, Indio Networks, Mox Communications, Ting Incorporated, and American Dark Fiber in October 2020. To the two projects that were canceled in California were expected to cost up to $2 billion each. 
and um, the New York City Broadband Services expansion, which launched earlier this year, has a price tag of $2.1 billion. Um, and that's it for uh, just a quick little overview. So I'll take it back to you, JB. Thanks, that I appreciate it. So, Andrew, to kick it off, the Federal Highway Administration made a communication last week to state DOTs, which could have a significant impact on highway procurement. If you can just walk us through this. Thank you, John. Yes, last week, uh, the White House um, and DOT announced a memo from FHWA uh, to state DOTs regarding guidance for alternative uses of the highway right-of-way. Um, you know, the guidance included uh, a variety of topics, including energy generation, electrical trends, mission and distribution, and also our, our core topic for today, broadband. And they bundled these into what they're calling kind of clean energy and connectivity projects or CEC projects. Um, and in pursuit of these projects, the guidance specifically mentions public-private partnerships, uh, as well as the need to minimize repeated excavations, otherwise kind of known as dig once. The guidance clarifies really two methods for accommodation of these right-of-way uses in the Code of Federal Regulations. Uh, either as an accommodation as a utility or as an approval of as an alternative use. And I'm going to go a little bit into the weeds here and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring us back up. Um, to be accommodated as a utility, USDOT is informing the states to update their utility accommodation policies to include language around energy generation and or broadband uses. Um, it's provided some kind of um, standard language for that. Um, and is also encouraging states to use fees um, accrued through you know, this utility use for transportation related projects. There's a number of current restrictions um, that are prohibited by statute around commercial activity, for example, on interstate rest stops um, that you know, the administration itself can't change, it's gonna have to be changed in legislation. Um, but, you know, but what they can do, they are doing right now um, you know, through administration priorities. The second approval process as an alternative use to the right of way, um, you know, as, or as an uh, as yes, and as an alternative use to the right of way can be utilized, it's you know determined um, that you know these clean energy communications projects are in the public interest. You know, in this administration, what the memorandum is saying is that FHWA will treat these types of broadband installations as an acceptable use um, as it assists with equitable communications access. So, what does this mean? It, it just it means that there's really clear federal support for more broadband projects along highway right of way. Um, as well as an explicit mention of P3s. So I'd hope that, you know, um, nationally we'd see kind of a strong growing market for these types of projects as states uh, kind of take up the mantle um, of the, this federal guidance in particular um, over the next four to eight years. Great. Well, Devin, the good news is, is that plenary is already here. In the past 12 months or so, they've won contracts for aspects of the Pennsylvania Turnpike Broadband Project and the recently awarded North Carolina Highway Broadband Project. Perhaps you can walk us through the contracts, one in each deal, as they were slightly less traditional, you know, DBFOM contracts, if you will. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, we've been uh, pretty fortunate to uh, have been focusing on on these broadband right-of-way projects for the last few years, uh, you know, starting with the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission's uh, broadband project, you know, there was a, an initial procurement of that project that was, you know, a full DBFOM type of, of project with commercialization um, ac across the entire state. And I think, you know, once bids came in on, on that project and, you know, some more certainty around the costs, uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike subsequently 
you know, canceled the initial procurement and, and ran a bifurcated process. So there's a, you know, design build project for the Eastern portion of the network, uh, by others and, and a consor- consortium, um, with plenary and our partners, Tilson, uh, won the operations maintenance and commercialization scope. So, uh, about towards the end of this year, the project should be nearing completion on construction under the DB contract, uh, and we'll take over the network uh, once ready for service and you know, maintain a portion of that network for the Pennsylvania Turnpike um, and, and really that to meet their telecommunications needs and cashless tolling. Uh, and there'll be additional capacity that you know, our consortium will, uh, will commercialize. Um, so that closed earlier this year. We're obviously still early stages from a commercialization standpoint. Uh, you know, construction is underway, um, but you know, definitely a, a positive development. Um, getting this type of model out there. Uh, ha- happy to dive into more details, but just switching gears on onto North Carolina. Um, you know, then with the caveat that we're we're um, still in a closing process there, so you know, probably thinner on details that I could give, but effectively, it's a similar model. There is a, a separate design build contract that will see the construction of you know roughly 600 miles of um, fiber optic uh, cable along the right of way, um, and that again will be bifurcated between. You know, fiber infrastructure needed uh, by NCDOT for their needs and their ITS devices and dynamic messaging signs and additional capacity uh, that, again, a plenary uh, consortium with Tilson will uh, operate and commercialize uh, over the next 30 years. Um, So further away from a ready-for-service network there, but definitely a lot of activity, um, particularly on the commercialization side, you know, even before the the network's in the ground to, um, you know, make sure we've got the right capacity and supporting infrastructure to, uh, you know, to set up a a viable and commercially valuable network. Devin, before we get to the next question, I think it would be good for our... uh listeners to talk about the commercialization aspect of the project, how that works is again, sort of an issue we don't typically deal with all the time in covering these procurements, you know, at least through the vise of the Penn Turnpike. Can you walk us through how that's going to work? Sure. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, from my perspective, there's certainly different ways you can approach commercialization and it really depends on, you know, who is the entity commercializing. So I think someone like Plenary Americas, you know, we are first and foremost, uh, um, you know, an uh, investor and developer of publicly owned infrastructure. So we're not a retail service provider. We don't provide, you know, end services for customers. Um, that being said, I think there's a, you know, a really good framework here where, um, we can effectively, and along with our partners at, at, at Tilson and, and SQF, we commercialize capacity, fiber capacity, really on a wholesale type basis. So the types of customers we're looking at, you know, would range from mobile carriers to ISPs to data centers, you know, enterprises that are looking to, you know, have perhaps their own you know, IT departments and are really just looking for dark fiber. Um, so there's definitely, you know, a, a wholesale type of nature to, to the commercialization activities. Now, that being said, we have the long-term contract with, with the turnpike and access to the right-of-way, which I know we'll talk about in, in a little bit. But 
you know, that allows us to develop supporting infrastructure to make sure that those end customers are, you know, seeing some uh, utility in both the location and the uh, capacity and the function of the of the network that uh, we'll commercialize. So uh, that, that that's really how we're looking at it. I think as, as many know in the industry, it moves very rapidly. So, you know, depending on what the needs are at the time for customers, you know, we'll, we'll likely need to you know, pivot strategies ongoing as more of a, a business as opposed to, you know, kind of a fixed P3 concession. Um, so, so that's generally how, how we're looking at the asset class. Very interesting. So we talked before uh, airing today about right away issues and, and, you know, sort of filled me in, obviously this is something that falls to the contractor ultimately, but um, can you just maybe walk us through the basics of what right away issues will come up as uh, these projects progress? Sure. Yeah, I can definitely uh, give you my best answer. You know, I think notwithstanding plenary won't be managing the construction of, of these projects, you know, we'll certainly be, operating infrastructure um, and in the right of way and the nature of these assets. It's not, again, it's not a stagnant asset that sits there uh, in the ground. There's going to be network expansion and upgrading. So there will be quite a, quite a bit of activity for us in the right of way. Um, you know, and I think the starting point for projects like Penn Turnpike and, and the NCDOT project is, is a great framework in that as part of our contract and concession agreement, we have this access to the right of way um, to be able to kind of operate and commercialize the infrastructure. And that's a big, uh, a really important piece because not every fiber P3 type project has had that framework um, and that kind of right of way access is a big risk, um, but one that doesn't exist in the same way on these projects. That being said, you know, we're, we're adjacent to an active roadway for hundreds of miles, and there's um, obviously clear safety considerations, uh, b- both in terms of activities on the, on the uh, side of the, of the highway, as well as you know certain types of infrastructure that we'd look to build to support the commercial network. Must consider you know the the risks and considerations, obviously, of, of being along a highway. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think we're certainly eyes open that there will be issues and constraints that come up. Um, you know, there's obviously lots of other contractors over the next 20, 30 years that are going to be operating along the, the right of way, you know, road widening projects, there's existing utilities, there's, you know, requirements on our side to make sure we've got power, um, for certain types of assets. So the, there's definitely going to be, you know, a, a lot of activity and a lot of uh, management about um, that type of a project. But again, going back to the, the, you know, the foundation in these P3 agreements where we do have that access to the right of way, that's, that's certainly uh, important and uh, manages a, a large risk on, you know, these types of projects. Great. Well, let's talk about the projects themselves. I mean, what do you think are the real catalysts for these type of projects from either the turnpike authorities or the various state DOTs. Now you've you know been through more than a couple of years talking with Pennsylvania through the broadband project and more recently through North Carolina. What do you fear are the ultimate drivers for these type of projects and how does this really benefit the end user, aka the, the, tr- the commuter at the end of the day? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, really my strong view on, you know, the catalyst and really the success factor here is there needs to be a clear and understood 
you know, value add for the public sector. So taking the Pennsylvania Turnpike, for example, you know, they have their own telecommunications needs for their highway operating activities. And so there's value for them. They need and they've decided to have a fiber optic um, supporting infrastructure for these types of activities. So they're already planning to install this type of infrastructure. The marginal cost of running additional capacity to commercialize and to generate income from uh, makes a lot of sense. But without that kind of core, you know, highway operations need, core public sector need, it becomes a more difficult business case, right? Because there needs to be some willingness to um, really share in some of the costs, um, which has been done on both these projects where there is either state or other f- public funding coming in, you know, how that accrues to the actual, you know, users of the, the turnpike itself in that example, I think it's twofold. One, the goal of this project is to also generate uh, positive revenue for the turnpike authority, um, which they can obviously use as part of their highway operations and maintenance and upgrading, um, w- which is obviously beneficial. And then the other side of the equation, which is probably a little, well, not probably, it's definitely less defined today, is how connected and autonomous vehicles are going to need telecommunications assets to function appropriately. And I think there's you know debate about which path it's going to go down and you really need a critical mass to, to really understand the best solution. But I think there's obviously in the next, you know, you could, some would say as five years, but definitely in the next 30 years, there's going to need to be uh, infrastructure to support those types of activities. And I think that will be more of the direct benefit for users in addition to, you know, for example, having uh, strong wireless connectivity in sections of the roadway where historically there just hasn't been good cell signals, things like that. Um, you know, th- th- that'll be kind of the secondary and tertiary benefits of these. But I think the core focus on why these projects and how these projects can be successful is really identifying and valuing the benefit to, you know, the public counterparty. That's terrific. And, and Devin, o- only strong opinions on this program, by the way. We don't want weak ones, just to let you know. <laughs> so just to conclude on the highway part, what other jurisdictions, to your knowledge, are, are looking at these projects now? And, and you know, what, what else can you say about, about them, the status of those projects? Yeah. No, um, so obviously, Olivia covered some of this in the beginning. I think thinking about kind of pure DOT-led types of projects, obviously, one that, that jumps out and is probably front of mind is, is GDOT and Georgia's plan. Um, obviously, part of a, um, you know, there's some history there and part of a, a bigger uh, project, including construction of, of uh, roadway construction as well, that will obviously have some interface to how uh, the broadband project will unfold. But it's definitely one where we're looking at and, and um keen to follow the development there. So I would say that jumps out. Um, you know, there's, uh, as Olivia mentioned, I believe, you know, the project in, in Tennessee that's uh, in pre-launch and a, f- and a few others around the state. But, you know, I, I definitely think there there's also a lot of focus on these fiber to the home projects, which I know you're, you're going to be talking about in a little bit. And, you know, there's obviously has a much more direct interface with underserved and, and unconnected uh, individual customers as opposed to, as opposed to a, you know, a broader kind of DOT need. So you're definitely seeing a lot more news in, in that sector, but, um, you know, keen to see more DOTs, particularly with the, 
um, FHWA, um, you know, uh, uh, announcement uh, that Andrew spoke a little bit about, you know, hope, hopefully that acts as uh, a, a catalyst to get more of these DOTs to think about broadband projects in a similar way. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at, I'm sort of wondering about the Austin, Texas, is whether that's going to be a, a hub of activity there as well after they got their big infrastructure measure passed in November. And they are in the midst of doing several highway projects, whether broadband gets introduced there at some point or not. But I, I guess we'll see. So, Andrew, given your work with the Biden administration and the Senate Committee for Environment and Public Works, can you give us a sense on whether whether or not through the vise of America's Jobs Plan, what we should expect ultimately coming out of this, whether it's a broader infrastructure plan or at least getting some kind of broadband incentives package getting approved at some point, if, if not part of the, the broader sweep that was first proposed in March 31st? Thanks, John. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at a high level have really um, kind of strong hopes for a broadband package to come from Congress in the coming years, in part because you know, you've mentioned the, you know, America's jobs plan, but there's really been kind of clear messaging around the importance of broadband in particular going back, you know, through last year, um, both in, you know, now President Biden's campaign, as well as perhaps more notably HR2, um, the Moving um, America Forward Act that passed out of the House last, uh, last summer. Um, you know, that bill had a handful of provisions focused on broadband that came from the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, um, you know, most notably um, preempting state restrictions on municipal broadband, which I think we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, you know, um, and, you know, for the P3 conversation, a new financing program, BIFIA, um, or the Broadband Infrastructure Finance and Innovation Act. Um, for folks listening in um, who are in the P3 space, you could probably tell that's a complementary program to TIFIA and WIFIA um, for transportation and water, respectively. Um, you know, it's also worth noting that you know these provisions were you know endorsed by now Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. Uh, there's plenty of political capital to make sure these are included in a coming bill. Um, you know, and that brings us to today of kind of what is you know what is coming now. Um, you know, the House is going to work off that bill from last summer off HR two for their reauthorization. Um, and I imagine those provisions, um, you know, will be included again. Um, and, um, um, you know, the White House has, of course, announced their America's American Jobs Plan, um, which includes funding for broadband as well. Um, you know, notably, their Republican counter proposal also includes broadband funding, which makes me believe that it's likely that's something that will get bipartisan support in the long run, um, you know, in kind of a broader infrastructure package. So. Um, you know, I have high hopes and I, and I think, you know, broadband is being included in kind of the definition of infrastructure on both sides of the aisle right now. Thanks for that. And just within the proposal itself from the 31st of March, how is rural broadband supposed to work within what was proposed in that plan? The Biden administration's plan announced, you know, a kind of aspirational $100 billion in broadband funding um, that includes, you know, covering rural broadband. Um, you know, and they're really trying to kind of reference back to the New Deal, um, which brought, you know, electricity to rural America for the first time. Um, you know, and what they're, you know, how they're thinking about it, um, kind of prioritizing broadband networks, um, is they're really kind of looking at, you know, broadband networks owned or operated by kind of local governments, nonprofits and cooperatives. Um, and this kind of alludes to, you know, the policy that was in HR2 earlier, um, around, you know, uh, kind of, you know, state preemption issues. Um, you know, there's some examples of this out there already. 
um, that I wouldn't, you know, consider rural, but kind of smaller city. Um, you know, the most notable examples is like the Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, which has a municipally owned broadband network that you know, claims the highest internet speeds in the Western hemisphere. Um, you know, the local ownership model that I think the administration is looking at that is kind of modeled in Chattanooga, um, you know, both allows the municipality to kind of, you know, charge and make revenue, but also, um, um, you know, allows them the flexibility, for example, um, to offer free broadband during the pandemic, um, you know, when low income students were now working from or, you know, working or studying from home. So, you know, I think they'd like to see more successes like Chattanooga across the country. Um, you know, and notably, uh, I'd say, you know, Chattanooga's network was built with RF funds, um, the last economic downtown, uh, sorry, downturn. Um, and, um, you know, I'd imagine they want to kind of be able to scale that success uh, across the country. So, you know, you know, from a policy standpoint, you know, I think the, the kind of this local uh, preemption kind of issue will, will be a little less bipartisan. I think something like BIFIA, it's kind of, uh, you know, financing tool for broadband will, um, I think will kind of likely go, go forward unscathed, um, but I guess we'll see. Great, thanks for that. Devin, you also talked to me before about how Plenary was looking at fiber to the home plays besides highway projects. How does that work within the purview of a, of a P3? Yeah, thanks, John. So, you know, similar to what I was saying earlier uh, on the podcast about, you know, identifying that that public need and, and I'll make the distinction between, um, you know, public here being individual customers and underserved customers and those that need fiber to the home versus, you know, a public counterparty that would be championing the project. Um, you know, I think, again, there's a space from, from our perspective for traditional P3 investors and developers um, to really come in there and provide a public stakeholder, whether it's a municipality or, you know, a larger region or, you know, health authority, a school authority, some sort of a champion and also anchor tenant uh, is the key distinction here for, um, you know, part of the fiber infrastructure that really reduces the overall cost of the project, right, for to, to, to enable that uh, access to individual homes and bring fiber to the home if that's, you know, the technical solution in a given project. So the way we're looking at it is, you know, let's say there's a city that, um, you know, wants to, to move forward with the fiber to the home project, identifying, okay, what is the right of way access that you have a city have control over um, that this fiber infrastructure could be built on? Um, you know, what needs do you have in terms of connecting your institutions or other functions of um, from the public sector's perspective um, and, and valuing that and really determining, okay, how much of a cost share for this kind of core infrastructure is, is warranted and really is appropriate. Um, and, you know, based on the result of that, then you can say, okay, let's bring the infrastructure on that basis and on that framework to a certain point. And it might not be all the way to individual homes. It might be to cabinets and co-location facilities that are very close to, um, you know, underserved communities and then have an actual retail service provider and ISP meet at that location. Now, obviously that location and that last mile cost needs to be 
uh, economically feasible for you know whoever that other party might be meeting us and ultimately serving the customer. But that's the point of identifying, okay, what is the core kind of public facing P3 project that can effectively help subsidize um, that last mile. And I think there's, it, it, it obviously takes a little bit of work and structuring, but I think it's an appropriate delineation because then you can get your traditional P3 investors and developers to really focus on the, whether it's back, backbone, middle mile, or, you know, even further other assets, f- focus on the certainty of delivery, the certainty of, of financing and or funding um, and operations and maintenance. And you're leaving a small piece um, to the retail service provider that then is the most appropriate party to actually, you know, provide retail services and meet the needs of, of individual customers. Um, so, so we think that general framework is one that could work in, in a lot of instances, not all of them. Um, and it certainly wouldn't preclude, you know, accessing additional uh, federal subsidy funding for um, that's already allocated or talked about being allocated um, for these types of fiber to the home projects. And Devin, you just told me there was a good model for this in France. How does that work? I'll give you my best uh, summary. Strong, of, strong uh, summary. Uh, my strong summary of how I think that works, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I, I'm not as across the details as I'd, I'd like to be, but really generally speaking, and I'll compare it to a kind of a model that we see uh, up in Canada, which is, you know, you've got a, for example, universal broadband fund that has money allocated to um, you know, projects that will help serve underserved areas um, and kind of solve this connectivity gap or the digital divide. Um, so the model there is you get, you know, subsidy, public funding that brings down the cost of the project to such a level that, you know, private you know, service providers, um, you know, it makes economic sense for them to come in and build that and own that infrastructure and serve those customers. I think the the what they're doing in France and what they have been doing in France for the last number of years, um, you know, with probably varying degrees of success is to say, okay, what are these areas where, you know, they call them white zones, I believe, where their customers, uh, where there is a connectivity gap. And instead of just, you know, providing a subsidy so that a, you know, a, a private operator or service provider is attracted to build in that area, they actually uh, the local authority in the area will own the network and the network infrastructure and really structure these like long-term P3 concessions where a concessionaire, you know, like a plenary or, or someone else would come in, look at the model, evaluate what the revenue and cash flow might look like over the next 30, 30 plus years and, and bid on that, on that, um, to be the concessionaire of that network with the distinction that it's, publicly owned um the network infrastructure is publicly owned so it's it's a slight nuance but one and certainly brings with it limitations whether you're when you don't have private ownership of assets from a financing standpoint but i think it's structured in such a way that it you know it, it grants things like access and exclusive rights to operate those networks and allows a little bit more certainty um, in terms of, you know, how you can value these things, obviously under a competitive bidding environment. But I think the biggest benefit is it's really the public authority is effectively taking the reins here and saying, yes, we are willing to own this infrastructure and structure this as a kind of concession project um, to make sure and effectively mandate um, service to these regions. 
Um, and again, I mean, there, there's probably examples of where things haven't worked, um, you know, as they, people would have liked them to theoretically. But I think that general model is one that, you know, we'd like to see a little bit more of, which is effectively public entities and whether they're state transportation agencies or again, you know, municipalities or larger kind of regions, um, where they see a benefit and are willing to invest in owning that um, you know, whether it's fiber optic, fiber optic infrastructure or some other um, type of infrastructure, you know, fixed wireless or other, there's a willingness to kind of own and uh, that, that infrastructure outright to make sure that constituents um, are, are, are being served. So one that we hope to see a little bit more of uh, in North America. Appreciate that. So before we sign off, just wanted to thank the Young Professionals of Infrastructure, YPI, for bringing this podcast together. Uh, Andrew, if you want to say a few words about YPI and their functionality, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so, you know, YPI is a industry-focused nonprofit um, founded in 2015 um, by young professionals in the US infrastructure space. Um, we really focus on a, a handful of things, including, um, you know, promoting awareness and understanding of P3s, um, you know, driving, you know, increased diversity and inclusion within the industry. Um, as well as, you know, increasing knowledge transfer and, you know, cultivating relationships among young professionals um, in the sector. Uh, we operate a number of committees. Um, I, you know, in particular, I'm on um, the education committee. Um, and, you know, we're always looking for more folks to be involved in the organization. Um, you know, if you have any questions, um, you know, feel free, feel free to reach out, you know, via our website at ypinfrastructure.com. And, you know, we look forward to, to hearing from you all. Great. Thanks for that. And again, I thank my panelists for joining me today on the pod. And please tune in next time. Brooke out.